Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 10th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Mysteries of Time and Memory. With me is Siri Husfit, the author of the novel Memories of the Future. Siri is the author of seven novels, four collections of essays, and two books of nonfiction. She has a PhD in English literature from Columbia University and has a lecturer in psychiatry at the Weill Cornell Medical College. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the European Essay Prize and the Princess of Asturias Award. Siri, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be talking to you. Absolutely. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. So to begin, just to help out listeners, what's the novel about? Well, uh, the novel is really a dialogue between an older self and a younger self. A woman um, in her early 60s finds a journal that she had written when she was in her early 20s. Uh, some of the material in the journal she remembers, some she has entirely forgotten. Um, but she is, uh, in a way, forced to confront her younger self and uh, how she has developed and changed in the meantime. Um, this, of course, involves how we remember what time is, uh, what does it mean to be a human being over time, um, so there's quite a bit of meditation um, on these subjects that I think remain mysterious for many people. Yeah, no, and all of that content intrigued me. And then I also confess there's an extra kicker here, or at least one. Uh, in 1978, I happened to move to Boston from Minnesota and was working on poetry writing. And one of my inspirations was John Ashbery who, of course, ah. in the novel, uh, you know, there's a poetry reading, and that's where the character S.H. meets Whitney, who proves to be, you know, a very close dear friend of hers. So to start where the novel starts, on page one, literally, we have both the word hero and adventurer. So this is, in many ways, a heroine's journey from Minnesota to New York, but that's just geography. What about the internal journeys? I'm talking intellectually, emotionally. Uh, even on a sensory basis, because uh, this is yes. not a novel that's shy about invoking sex. So, so no. tell me about, a bit about the internal journeys going on here. Right. So I think um, that obviously uh, youth, uh, especially uh, that moment, you had it. Um, I had it too. I did move to New York in 1978, uh, like the heroine of this novel. Unlike her, I didn't spend a year trying to write a novel I went directly to graduate school. Um, but the experience of New York, which I used um, as source material, if you will, for the novel, was um, 
a startling and very exciting adventure coming from a small town in Minnesota uh, that you know something about that we share. Uh, so the novel does move back and forth between memories from her childhood memories uh, of that place and um, the presence of New York City, uh, which of course was a very different city in 1978 than it is now. All the details about the city, including the John Ashbery uh, reading, are um, factually correct. Uh, the novel uh, departs from that. There's quite a bit of fantasy. Um, the role of the imagination is very important to the book. I mean, what is Memories of the Future? I, that is a paradox. No one can remember the future. Uh, but the reason I chose that title is, of course, because in order to imagine the future, we can only do it through the past. The patterns of the past are then projected into the future. Um, those patterns can be confining or they can be liberating. And part of this book, part of the story, is that uh, the heroine, the double heroine, if you will, uh, learns to break out of some of the patterns of the past um, that are painful and imagine another kind of future. Uh, one of the ways she does it is through uh, a, a heroine, an artist who really did exist, a Dada a poet and artist named Elsa von Freytag Lorinhoven. Um, she becomes a kind of symbol or image of what is possible for for women okay um so i have to say that you know i kept looking for the word and eventually i got it on page 284 it <laughs> struck me that this is a novel very much about ambition yes um and so you know there is a reference early on to <clears throat> excuse me jay gatsby's beautiful shirts but The Great Gatsby is at least ostensibly about money, although, of course, it's very much about romantic longing, about illusions, about disillusionment. So yeah. I'm curious, for the character of S.H., what would you say is the, the driving ambition? I mean, where does it come from? What's its source? How does one have this kind of courage to take on such a journey? Well, isn't that interesting? <clears throat> I've been wondering about this myself for a very long time. Um, sometimes in other terms, for example, why are some people so eager to explore and so curious and other people are not? Uh, what is that impetus that drives us forward? Um, you know, we're all caught in time, if you will. We all age. We all, uh, uh, you know, age without, you know, any permission. It just happens to us. Time happens. But um, how do we affect that time? I think this is not completely answered, but this young woman uh, needs to be able to unleash her own ambition. And in order to do that, I think she has to overcome certain obstacles. At the very heart of the book, I have to say, I wrote that section of the book before the Me Too movement happened, but there is a sexual assault. And, um, and that is in some way the heart of the book. Uh, she 
gets caught in a kind of traumatic repetition, but works her way out of it. And as you said, when we talked before this interview, that scene is actually literally dead set in the middle of the book, just happens to be. It was just, that was an unconscious uh, uh, act on my part, which is really interesting. It was an unconscious act of timing, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, it's a book about time, but that I should have put exactly the same number of pages on either side of that uh, particular chapter uh, amazed even me. I certainly was not uh, conscious of it. Well, as, as Robert Frost said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. So uh, one <laughs> has to right. uh, both accept and in fact enjoy these things as they occur. I think it's actually, so that is another important aspect of thinking about fiction and writing, which is that so much of it, certainly in my case, but I think in the case of many other writers as well, is generated unconsciously. Uh, we are aware of what we're doing to some degree, and yet sometimes uh, the best material emerges. Uh, It isn't uh, planned. Sure. Well, it goes back to uh, Mark Twain's wonderful saying, the only problem with fiction is it has to make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, and there's a wide, um, you know, scope from uh, work that is easily accessible to any reader and work that is much more difficult. Um, You can think of of, uh, Emily Dickinson as, um, I think, a great writer, but also difficult, um, hard to paraphrase. Yeah, and and actually my favorite favorite poet, because I'm surprised every sentence, every line. Yes, yes, and it never goes away. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, she's, no, she's just so effervescent for me. I just, I, I adore yeah, no, Emily she, Dickinson. She's a kind of explosive uh, writer. In fact, I read Emily Dickinson every week simply to remind myself of what the English language can do. Wonderful. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it, it's a mainstay for me as well. So I'm going to go back just one last time yes, yes. to The Great Gatsby. Uh, and I'm going to read, I've never done this in one of my episodes, but I'm actually going to read uh, a paragraph that's my favorite passage Good. from the book. It's not necessarily the most famous, but it uh-huh. does happen to be my favorite. Then I have a question, I promise you, tagged on to the back side of this. Good. So they're, they're, they're pulling out, Nick Carraway is writing, of course, and uh, they are pulling out of Chicago, going home at Christmas. And this is what he writes as the narrator. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow began to stretch up beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by. A sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and the sleigh bells and the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. At the end of that second paragraph that I just read from, there is a comment that everybody in the book is from the Middle West, and he writes, perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common, which made us suddenly unadaptable to Eastern life. 
you think the character in the novel feels that to any extent? Um, he, yes, I, that's a beautiful passage. I know it quite well. Um, and uh, there is this dichotomy in The Great Gatsby uh, between the, the solid narration of Nick and the floating, shallow, crazy people um, that he is in contact with. Actually, the novel would be unbearable if it weren't for the narration, uh, which is an interesting thing. I mean, there most of the other characters, including Gatsby, who's mysterious, but really uh, kind of a fraud, uh, would be intolerable without Nick. So he is the ground. Um, I think that in, you know, my book, um, it's different. And um, nevertheless, there is this... Uh, dialogue, not only between the old and the young narrator, but between urban reality and the reality of the childhood, um, not in the Midwest, in Minnesota. Not all of it is um, so simple. I mean, the figure of the father is a complex figure, a figure who um, is then echoed by the kind of condescension that she meets up with in the city too, you know, part of the hero drama that goes on throughout the book, who's a hero. Um, and she, I think, slowly recognizes the assumption of maleness that allows that kind of condescension and is also part of the sexual assault that she experiences. Yeah, it's what makes the sexual assault so central because there's been intellectual assaults in that there's been a lack of yeah. respect shown at times. But yeah, well, physical... I think, you know, I think this person is, is punishing her. And uh, I do think that that is an element of all this. Who do you think you are, right? How dare you um, is very much part of the uh, systemic uh, drama of of sexism and and misogyny that is part of the book. There is there is <laughs> there are some crazy women in the book too that I want to mention who are actually witches or call themselves witches. So that's yes. also part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't want to play a literary bookkeeper, but uh, since this is a show about EQ Spotlight, as I went through yes. the book. To my surprise, I began circling emotion words uh, uh -huh, that occurred okay. or, or verbs that indicated that that emotion was being felt. Uh -huh. So if you don't mind, this will probably be the only interview you've ever done on this book that would follow this line of thought. That's but okay. I, I'm curious to go through these in turn because certain emotions definitely stand out more than others. Yeah. And then there's one that comes in toward the end of the book, which I think is fairly instrumental to the book itself, at least from, from my take. So uh -huh. one that I definitely noticed is fear or references to feeling coward, coward by something. And there's a really interesting statement, which is that the character SH says, I was afraid of heroes and villains and fools, afraid of who was who. Yeah. And you elucidate on that. Yes, I think that we, many of us, perhaps all of us, are given uh, 
pre-scripted narratives. They're part of the big culture, you know, and the hero narrative is certainly one of them. If you think of the lasting uh, story of a figure such as Ulysses, you know, who conquers all odds and does eventually get home after his adventure, that's referred to in the first line of, of the novel, that we are continually using these narratives to write our own lives, but they also write us. Uh, you know, what the narrator says in the very first paragraph again is, what I know now, but I didn't know then, is as I wrote, I was also being written. So this idea that we are directed by uh, cultural narratives and that they can be liberating sometimes and often they can be deeply confining. And um, there is some terror, <laughs> I think, involved in that, that we are being controlled and written by the narratives that we've adopted. Another one that doesn't play very heavily in this book, but certainly does in the culture, is happily ever after. You know, uh, Americans, and I think many other people too, are looking for a state of happiness, as if you arrive at a moment, and then everything is good. But of course, emotional life is not like that. Uh, we don't arrive and then become static, happy creatures. Happiness is part of um, our emotional repertoire that includes sadness, fear, anger, um, all the big emotions, shame guilt and uh and so sometimes those cultural narratives are deeply damaging um also the idea that the hero has to be male you know this is a big thing women of course especially middle class women had very little access to adventure unless they dressed as men uh for many centuries well, i've just been watching the american experience episode on uh, PBS about women getting the vote, and it's just astonishing the lengths that had to be gone to to secure what I think should be so obvious. Um, right, and it's just you know a hundred years now. Yeah, no, it's it's um, you know uh, this year. Yeah, yeah, quite the thing. You, well, you kind of set me up for the next two emotions because okay. there's a point where Whitney <laughs> says to SH, "You like to be sad." So although happiness may be the dominant emotion in the cultural story often about America and, you know, Coke commercials and so forth about being happy and drink Coca-Cola, uh, seemingly Whitney is onto something just possibly uh, that you like to be sad. Is that you think actually true of the character looking back in some fashion? Well, well I think that we all actually have moments where we indulge ourselves in uh, sadness or self pity when we, I think the word is wallow uh, in it, that it is giving us something possibly perverse, but nevertheless uh, uh, is a form of emotional indulgence. Now, that I think is part of the complexity of, of human emotional reality. Uh, there are times we enjoy being sad, enjoy uh, going there. And yeah. as for the character, I think, I think sometimes, I, I think youth um, is 
a volatile period for most people. One thing the narrator also says is that when she looks back at the journal, she realizes how she fluctuated among so many emotions in ways that she doesn't as an older person. I think that's quite typical. Um, and, and there is a lot of fluctuation because there's also, um, you know, s smiling and happiness comes up really rarely in the descriptions in the book, truth be told. Uh, I could only find one except for uh -huh. a late it? reference to it? confidence. Uh -huh. um, but, there, but the book is very funny, you know. I mean, the book is a kind of comedy. Oh. And uh, I laughed a lot while I was writing it. Um, there's a lot of uh, satirical stuff for me, a lot of humor. So I don't think of it at all as a sad book. Although I wasn't suggesting it was a sad book. I was suggesting that the, the character only is described or references smiling one time that I came across. I mean, you know, the, the book mentions Tristram Shandy, and I think there was some of that humor and playfulness, you know, that I remember from that novel in this novel, certainly. Absolutely. Well, it's it's there for a reason. <laughs> the references yes. are all there for a reason. Uh, there, you know, to and actually Tristram Shandy comes up very early. And uh, I did think of it as a signal to the reader uh, to be prepared for um, a novel that was not going to follow uh, what we think of as, you know, the tra traditional path of, of the realist novel. Yeah, and enjoy not following it. Yes. Yes. Have some fun. Yes. Um, some results. Yeah. So an, another emotion that comes up quite a bit, um, and sometimes it's referred to as humiliation or regret, but mostly it's shame. Um, and I'm wondering how the shame, if that in any way plays to the ambition, because there is a point where there's a reference to not wanting to have done something that would have shamed the parents or made them feel shame on behalf of the character. So I was oh, yeah. wondering if in pride and shame and ambition, there's some nexus there going on that I well, have to take. Yeah. I think, you know, shame is a powerful emotion. Um, I think most developmental psychologists uh, agree that it precedes guilt, right? Guilt is a kind of internalization of, uh, of shame that comes much earlier and is social. Right? Shame is when someone else is looking at you um, in a negative way. You know? and, uh, and it has a powerful effect uh, you know, on the shamed person. Uh, so I think shame is something people want to avoid at all costs. And it's a, an emotion, because it's a social emotion, it plays into this book very strongly because she finds herself in positions where she is shamed for no reason, right? I think that the, uh, if, you, if you will, the sexual politics of male condescension to women um, is, is often about shaming them, making them feel as if they've done something wrong, as if it's their fault and they should be ashamed of their behavior when in fact nothing has happened, um, nothing to be ashamed of. And this is part of the trajectory of her book, of the book too, that she moves out of that. Uh, and, 
you know, the, the, the figure of the Baroness um, is in a way a figure who will not be shamed. Uh, she uh, refuses to buckle under to that um, psychological pressure. And the narrator finds great strength in that image. And that's what I, that brings me to the last emotion, which was anger, because to me, that is part of the <laughs> movement of the book, because anger is really not an emotion that's referenced in any fashion. But once the Baroness shows up, yeah, then, then that becomes an emotion, which of course is a, an approach emotion. It's about wanting to make advances. It's an emotion that's not going to accept uh, projected inferiority from the male gaze, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, I found it very right. interesting that it came when it did in the book. Yeah, well, I think that this uh, narrator, the young narrator, who's then glossed by the older narrator, but the young nar narrator is unable to tap into her rage, right? So what happens, and this is, you know, I think very um, evident also um, in writings and psychology and, and psychoanalysis, that when rage is turned inward, it can become sadness or depression. You know, it's my fault. I did it. Rage, as you said, is an outward emotion. It has often a target. And that can be um, a liberating emotion as well. And the, <laughs> the story moves from after her sexual assault, a friend of hers gives her switchblade and a legal weapon in New York still and uh, she is afraid of it but then she names it the Baroness and she starts to carry it around with her and I, I really do think of that knife as the image of the rage that she cannot entirely express yet at the moment that she can express her rage openly, she can retire the knife, right? The knife is a kind of displacement for what really frightens her, which is her own anger. And uh, I, again, think a lot of middle-class girls, especially a lot of middle-class white girls, have been raised to not show their anger, and if they do show it, they're punished for it socially. So. Um, uh, this is, again, the unfolding of the young narrator's movement um, into greater emotional openness. Yeah. And, and in fact, anger, you know, obviously has its downsides, but it has its upsides as well. Yes, it can be it quite does. an enabling emotion. <laughs> so, to, so to have it off, off limits is really a, a handicap, you know, yes. in, some, in some fashion. Um, so speaking of the knife, I mean, this is a book that actually ends not with a word. It ends with a drawing. It, it ends with yes. a drawing that has the knife and the woman liberated rising in the air. And there's a skyscraper there. So you yes. had mentioned to me that nobody who's interviewed you has actually brought up the drawings. And both of us like art a great deal. There are, I think I believe, about 14 drawings right. in all in the right. book. Yeah. I, I have two questions for you regarding the drawings. One is we have villains. I mean, Paul DeMann, uh, Donald Trump, Duchamp <laughs> are all in the drawings. There are heroes as well. Einstein, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Dickens books are shown on a, as if on a bookshelf. My question, my first question here is, 
where in the world is Barbara Stanwyck? Uh, because it seems <laughs> to me she could have been a hero, and she is referenced in the novel. She is a hero, and the Baroness is a hero. I think, you know, the images, I'm an admirer of Einstein, uh, and I think, you know, Duchamp is a complex figure. He's not necessarily a villain. Um, but I did want to have these images of great men, uh, you know, whatever, whether they were, uh, well, to my mind, grotesque figures such as Donald Trump um, or, uh, you know, brilliant figures in the history of the West such as Einstein. But what we do in the culture is we inflate these people into, you know, the images of the, into images of autonomous great men born of nobody, come from nowhere. And I wanted my drawings to bring them down to human size, often comic human size. So uh, the idea of the great man is, is, <laughs> is a mixed one. You know, some of them you can genuinely regard as heroes. Some of them are uh, brutal. They are all men, however. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, there are very few female geniuses that are harked in the culture the way male geniuses. So I wanted to emphasize that. The drawings are a form of punctuation that I felt added to the text. They are not illustrations in some um, simple way, you know, showing what's happening in the story. They're added to the story. And because this happens so rarely in novels, it happens regularly, of course, in comics that are a big uh, form now, but not, um, not in <laughs> novels. So I find that nobody asks you. Well, I, I welcome so their I'm addition, and, and I, I thought it was important. <laughs> and and I, I would restate a little bit how I was thinking of Duchamp. It wasn't that he was a villain necessarily, but the great man, as is accounted in the novel, you know, the authorship yes. of Fountain is yes. at least up for grabs and maybe even more than that. More, and, even more than that, yes. Yeah, and so that, that reaccounting of how much he's the great man and where's the great woman in this, because I did notice that the drawings outside of the doodles and Lucy's notebook, yes, it was a pantheon of male heroes, whether they were truly heroes or semi-heroes or not really heroes at all uh, in the final, you know, recounting. Yes. I wanted, I was very, uh, there's a cartoon, really a cartoon of uh, Donald Trump and that uh, he is walking backwards in time, right? The way we tell time visually in our culture is according to the direction that we read and write, right? So time moves from left to right. Actually in Arabic, it's reversed because people read in the other direction, something I find really interesting. Um, but our spatial time telling so is from left to right. So I have him um, going in uh, the other direction, uh, reactionary. Uh, sure, no, I, I, I love that touch, that's great. <laughs> So um, switching gears a little bit. So in your dissertation uh, at Columbia University, now I'm speaking of, you know, Siri yeah. Husfit, not SH. Right, right. Um, you know, you, you uh, brought a lot of uh, people to bear in looking at Dickens. I'm talking about Freud and Lacan and Kristeva and others. Uh, 
critical theory is one of the leading uh, categories on the New Books Network in terms of what people follow and have an interest in. Right. So I wanted to give you an opportunity if you chose to apply any of the you know, kind of critical thinkers that you think might have particular relevance or resonance for this book. Oh, well, I, I could not have written this book, I think, even though I don't mention it, without um, uh, papers that are being written now in the cognitive neurosciences about memory. Uh, and some of this material echoes very strongly um, much earlier think of, thinkers. Vico, for example, Giambattista Vico, um, who published his book, The New Science. There are three editions, but seven. 1744, I think, is the, the last one. And um, he writes about memory as rooted in the body. And he also uh, talks about the fact that memory and the imagination are part of the same faculty. Um, in neuroscience research now, um, this goes back into the late 90s. I remember I came across a paper. Um, by Hesibus et al. And they, no, no, it's, it's later, I think, 2007. Anyway, um, they've written a number of papers about exactly this, that the hippocampus, which is part of the brain connected to memory, is also connected to the imagination. So people who have damage to that part of the brain not only don't remember well, they don't imagine very well. Um, this link is now expanded in, I don't know what you would call it, in studies of memory um, that are utterly fascinating because it's demonstrating a biological foundation, if you will, um, a material foundation for much earlier thoughts. Not just Vico, but later, for example, uh, Sigmund Freud who um, argued that memory is complete is off is shifting and it's dependent on the present. So our memories are not fixed. Um, there's no uh, uh, original memory in the brain. They're continually shifting and being edited. In neuroscience, that's called reconsolidation. Um, so all of this informed the writing of the book, even though I'm not bringing in uh, neuroscience, Vico is not in the book. I don't even think I've, I mentioned Freud in the book. Um, but nevertheless, my fascination with memory certainly informed both the structure and the thought in the novel itself. Yeah, no, there was a lot of uh, very intriguing musings on memory and identity and how we rewrite history as it's being written for us and all of that. Uh, it made me think a bit of uh, Kundira, Milan Kundira writing about the communists because he had a wonderful comment uh, based on how they rewrite history to take out people they don't no longer want there, which was nothing. <laughs> yes. This is an adage apparently in Prague, nothing is harder to predict than the past. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? And of yeah. course, uh, communist regimes had a real gift for this. You yes, know, they did. Not just in narrative history, but also in images, right? That one day there would be some uh, big commissar in, in, in uh, 
you know, in Stalin's uh, court, if you will, in a photograph. And the next time you looked, he had been edited out. Yeah, he, he was <laughs> Never down memory existed. Yes. I remember one of the barrier, he just disappeared from both the written and the image record of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, this, uh, this goes on. Of course, we are also, I think, in the midst of a moment when um, we have clashing narratives and the narrative from the top is uh, not so unlike uh, some of the uh, authoritarian uh, narratives of the 20th century. Sure. And even if it's not Barrow, which, which statues stay and go <laughs> yes, and yes, everything yes. else. Yeah, so be, just, before we, we run out of time, I wanted to get to one last thing. I know we both okay. like Kierkegaard, and there's a wonderful quote oh, from Kierkegaard yes. who says, out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. What are the contradictions that you would say, SH, particularly in bodies that you found kind of, uh, you know, enjoyable? Just before I comment on that, I just have to tell you that, you know, Kierkegaard is hiding in plain sight in the novel. And uh, I don't know if you remember, there's a drawing of the mysterious limping gentleman. Oh, yes. And that's modeled on drawings of Kierkegaard in the Danish newspapers when he was alive. So that little thread of the mysterious limping gentleman is a reference to Kierkegaard. Anyway, uh, I, I, am, I have been reading Kierkegaard since I was 15. Um, in 2013, I actually gave um, a keynote lecture on Kierkegaard at, um, the, uh, at the, on his birthday uh, and in, in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen. I still wrestle with Kierkegaard, which was one of the points of my paper. But I think of him as the great philosopher novelist or the great novelist philosopher. Uh, he writes as beautifully as anyone in the history of philosophy, um, a rival of Plato, I think. And uh, his ironies, and the complexity of his thought remain um, in a way an, an ongoing struggle in my own intellectual life. Um, he is really good to quote, um, but very hard to master. I think well, he uses, yeah, he uses metaphor in ways that are, um, well, just extraordinary. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have felt like, you know, throwing some of the texts on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and other times, you know, I'm completely enraptured, but I have never gotten enough of him. And, um, and I have a tendency to bid, binge read, to return, and then not be able to get myself out of Kierkegaard. So uh, he's, he's been a, a source of, of inspiration and uh, frustration in my life for many, many years. Well, we'll, we'll leave it that you, you can turn over the Rubik's Cube of, of Kierkegaard and yeah, Dickinson for, yeah. forever after. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been episode number 10, Mysteries of Time and Memory, with my wonderful guest, Siri Husfit, the author of the novel Memories of the Future. 
Uh, should you have any follow-up questions for Siri, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. You can go to my website, the three W's, sensorylogic.com, for any other information about additional episodes or to leave a rating for the show. Finally, I like to close every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I cannot resist George Bernard Shaw's comment, okay. <laughs> youth is wasted on the young. Thank you so much <laughs> so and true. take care. And thank you for being a great interlocutor. I really had fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Take Thank care, you. Dan. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye-bye.